you know, we tend to think so much of, of wealth as um, uh, material objects of, you know, whether you, the kind of car you have or how big your house is or how much stuff you have. And I think, you know, what I really discovered in Lunatic uh, was how affluence is clean air, clean water, um, lack of noise pollution. And most Americans live in unimaginable space and safety. Welcome to TV8 with Rolf Potts. Today is the latest in my ongoing series of interviews with people I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way, which I might point out makes a great gift for the travelers in your life as we approach the holiday season. If you haven't read it yet, please ask for it at your favorite bookstore. If you have read it, please help spread the word by giving it a five-star review at Amazon or Goodreads. Today's episode finds me in Washington, D.C., where my wife, Kiki, has the lead role in a play called People, Places, and Things, which runs at the Studio Theater through the middle of December. More about that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. The week I arrived in D.C., I got the chance to sit down and talk with travel writer Carl Hoffman, who I quote in three different parts of The Vagabond's Way. Carl is the author of four books, most notably the bestseller Savage Harvest, which investigates the 1961 disappearance of Michael Rockefeller in New Guinea. Carl's first book was called The Lunatic Express, which chronicled his journey around the world on a series of rickety local boats, buses, trains, and planes. We talk about the ways using the same inexpensive conveyances local people use as a way to experience a place in a way that goes beyond what the tourist industry offers us. We talk about how leaving yourself vulnerable to people invites friendship and hospitality, especially in less wealthy parts of the world. We talk about how wealth itself is often as much about cleanliness and open spaces and lack of constant noise as it is about material affluence. We also talk about how travel can remind us what we've been overlooking in our own hometowns. Our conversation took place in Washington's Meridian Hill Park, and you can hear the sounds of the city all around us, as well as the occasional sound of Carl's dog, Riley, a good-natured 14-year-old miniature Australian shepherd who joined us for the conversation. I start by reading a chapter from The Vagabond's Way that quotes Carl's book, The Lunatic Express. Let's listen in. It's called The Subtler Risks of Travel Carry Rich Rewards. The epigraph is from Maggie Downs. She says, travel makes me a better person. It pushes me to be friendlier and humbler. There aren't a lot of chances for me to be vulnerable in my everyday life, so it's refreshing to let my guard down, to ask questions and put my trust in others. The body of the chapter goes like this. The premise for Carl Hoffman's 2011 travel book, The Lunatic Express, was to sidestep the comforts of the tourism industry and circumnavigate the world using the same inexpensive transportation, rickety trains, crowded ferries, decrepit buses, that everyday people use to get around in their own countries. When his fellow passengers on a ramshackle third-class Indonesian ferry went out of their way to look after him on a five-day journey to the Molucca Islands, Hoffman resolved to follow the example of local travelers everywhere he went even if it went against his instincts as a comparatively privileged American traveler. If they drank the tap water of Mumbai and Kolkata and Bangladesh, so would I, he wrote. If they bought tea from the street corner vendors, so would I. If they ate with their fingers, even if I was given utensils, I ate with my fingers. Doing so prompted an outpouring of generosity and curiosity that never ceased to amaze me. It opened the door, made people take me in. That I shared their food, their discomfort, their danger, fascinated and validated them in a powerful way. On the road, the truest adventures don't involve purely physical risks. 
Often they are a matter of lowering your cross-cultural social inhibitions, foregoing a few comforts and conveniences, and endeavoring to experience a place in the ways people living there do. So tell me about uh, your, your project that inspired this book and this writing. You know, I did this story for Outside Magazine, I think it was in uh, 2006 or something, and about this crazy American pilot in the Congo. And um, everybody liked the story, and my editor was, we were talking about it, and they were like, what else could we do? And I just said, uh, well, why don't we, f maybe I should fly around the world in the world's most dangerous airlines. And he was like, hmm. And then he said, maybe, you know, you should go around the world in the w on the world's most, just go around the whole world in the world's most da dangerous everything. And I said, well, that's not a magazine story, that's a book. And, you know, I didn't write about hotels, I didn't write about shopping, I didn't write, I, I wrote about, you know, trying to go as deeply as I could into cultures and, and places, and uh, that just seemed obvious to me. And, and you know, I was also, uh, you know, as I thought about all this, I had been always like a fan of what is known as the bus plunge story, which are small fillers that you used to see more of in the newspaper because before digital uh, layout you know, because papers would have these missing blocks that they would have to fill. But, you know, there were always, there was always a story, you know, bus plunges off a cliff, you know, 36 dead. Um, and I started thinking about those uh, incidences and I, you know, every time, and I love to read them. Anyway, you know, those stories, I always made me wonder what the full story was, hmm. you know, who hmm. these people were who plunged off of, cliffs and, and sank in uh, Indonesian ferries and, uh, and you know, what the story was. And, uh, and I suspected there was just something there that would be interesting. Yeah, so that's what I did. So what Always. did you discover once you started um, taking these conveyances? I think, you know, you have to be conscious of who you are and what you represent. And, you know, as a white, you know, young white male, uh, American. I was a privileged person and I was a representative of a place that, you know, represented wealth and power and, you know, so people were nice to me in a way that maybe they wouldn't have been nice to uh, some other people. Um, so I think, you know, you got to take that into account. I mean, the biggest thing, you know, is this idea of, I mean, of affluence in a way and that the, you know, we tend to think so much of, of wealth as um, uh, material objects of, you know, whether you, the kind of car you have or how big your house is or how much stuff you have. And I think, you know, what I really discovered in Lunatic uh, was how affluence is clean air, clean water, um, lack of noise pollution, space. I mean, you know, I live in... Un and most Americans live in unimaginable space and safety. Um, you know, if you live in, if you're a, someone poor living in Mumbai, you know, you, met, you live in a room or two rooms full of people, full of multi-generations, and, you know, it's always loud. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of um, uh, pollution in your neighborhood, or, you know, dust and, um, uh, uh, 
uh, air pollution and, you know, there could be industrial pollution nearby. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a correlation all over the world between uh, industrial, and, you know, in places of industry and lower, uh, and people who have less uh, wealth. You know, neighborhoods, you know, cr you know, crummy neighborhoods have all the factories. Right. And, you know, the rich neighborhoods don't. It occurs to me that this is an aspect of the milieu of travel that has nothing to do with the travel industry. The travel industry actually insulates us from these actual experiences. You know, you take your conveyance to India and then you go to places where you can take pictures of certain ideas of India without really experiencing India itself or how, in, how most Indians travel themselves in non-touristic ways. So what was it like to sort of leave yourself open to this? How did you, because I think there's an extent to which the, the travel industry almost makes us fear um, these Hi. conveyances, um, with good reason sometimes, given the, the, the bus plunge story. But it also feels like that you can see a lot more of a place if you open yourself up to these sorts of experiences. Um, and so what sort of fears did you have to get over and what sort of discoveries did you make as you suddenly found yourself on cheap ferries, cheap buses, cheap trains? I don't know, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. First of all, I do the, the initial um, quote that you read, not from me, but from the woman about opening yourself up and being open, I think is very true. You know, I'm, we're in Washington, D.C. right now. I live, I'm from, born and raised, a native Washingtonian. And, you know, I hardly go out in my own city right now. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but, you know, I'm not really very open. And, you know, the minute I get on a, uh, I go somewhere on a foreign, you know, anything like lunatic really, um, you know, or, or doing Savage Harvest or any of those books, I mean, any reporting trip, but I think any travel, you know, you, you, you know, if you, I mean, by definition, I think to some extent, you know, you have to, you're opening yourself up, you know, emotionally, um, socially, uh, you know, unless you want to just sit in the, sit in the corner or sit by yourself in your hotel room, uh, then you are, uh, you know, expanding your, uh, your, 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 your your world, I don't mean just learning new things, but you know, just your, the people that you talk to and your willingness to talk to people and to hang out with people who you might not hang out with otherwise is a huge part of it and a, and, and a beautiful thing, I think. And it often takes leaving home to do that. You mentioned taking the ferry to the Malukas, which I did, a big Pelony ferry, you know, big four or 600 foot ferry with thousands of people on it, but when I got to the Malukas, I was at the harbor and I saw all these small, mostly wooden uh, ferries, you know, 30, 50 feet long that were going and I just got a ticket on one and I didn't know where we were going and I didn't know when, how long we were gonna be gone or when we were gonna be back and I brought no food and not even a bottle of water with me. You know, and I didn't speak Indonesian in those days. And I just got on the boat. And I remember when that boat, when that sh boat left the dock, I was just like, man, I'm so free right now. Like, and free and just dependent on, you know, wherever we end up and whatever happens, you know, I, I was like, you know, it's going to be okay. 
it's like I'm letting, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing off all of these kind of anxieties about control and, you know, the reality is there's food everywhere in the world. There's a kiosk every place in the world and the, and the farther out you go, you know, often the more kiosks there are with better, hotter food. And there's always water. Anywhere there's humans, there's food and water. Shelter. People love their children. People want to be safe. All those things are always true. You know, you can always, there's always a store where you can buy a pair of pants. You know, we go to so much trouble. What are we going to bring? What are we going to pack? You know, if you could pack almost nothing and then you could go somewhere and you could buy new clothes. I mean, there's always a store. Even if you're going, you know, whether you're going to China, Vietnam, Asmat in, uh, in you know, West Papua. I mean, there's always a, a store. In fact, you could probably get, you know, cheaper clothes. Anyway, not to, but... And so I, and then once in Brazil or in uh, Peru, you know, I took the bus over the Andes from uh, Cusco in a place called Puerto Maldonado, which is kind of a frontier town, a lot of gold mining and environmental destruction and is pursuit on the of wealth on the, on the, on the, well, in the Amazon jungle, mm -hmm. not the Amazon River per se, the Madre de Dio River. And uh, then uh, that was the end of the road. And then uh, there was a, a ferry that took a cars across, like a three-car ferry. And the other side of that was just this dirt road that went east. And I just got a car. I mean, you could get it in a car, like there were eight of us in this little station wagon. And, um, you know, some guy was running it, and off we went into the, I didn't know where we were going, really, or where, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand, I didn't speak any Portuguese, and, um, you know, I, I just went, and again, I was like, God, I was struck by the freedom of it all, and, uh, and, and just how we're so held back by all those fears and anxieties, and, um, you know, so much of our life is spent trying to be in control. If you think about the things, apps, you know, what are apps do? They're all about, you know, controlling your heart, watching your heartbeat, your caloric intake, your macros, your, you know, your, 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 uh, you know, everything, you know, your time, your calendar, you know, notifications. I mean, all those things, it's like managing your, your life versus letting all that go. Now, obviously, you, you know, it's hard to do that every day. You can't do that every day, but you know, that is sort of the promise of, to me, the best good travel is an adventure in which you let a lot of those things go. I think I um, quoted the Maluka trip in particular because you sort of had an epiphany on, on that trip. And so what was it like to go with no food and no water and... Well, you know, I mean, it, you know, of course, the whole idea, no food, no water, is, like I said, if there's people around, then there's food and there's water. So, you know, as it turned out, um, the the first mate of the ship had was fluent in English. I mean, it turns out he'd been in, on a fishing, fish processing boat in Alaska, and he'd gotten off and gotten drunk and ended up in prison in, in Alaska for six months before he was deported. And he said, where he learned to speak perfect English, and he said, you know, in Indonesia, you uh, go into prison big and you come out small. In America, you go in small and you come out big. <laughs> and um, you know, so first of all, he, he you know, the, the second in highest guy on the boat was, uh, which was a pretty small boat, was a uh, 
you know, it was fluent in English, and of course, people there was water to be had and delicious, you know, the the there was a guy on the boat making, you know, the Indonesians make sambal, uh, chili sauce, and they in in traditionally in a stone mortar and pestle ground, you know, and they were making the most beautiful sambal, and there was delicious food. I can't even remember who cooked it, and people were giving me food, and we ended up in this place called Buru, which is a actually a famous island in Indonesia. It was the site of its uh, prison penal colony, and, um, you know, that's where Indonesia's most famous novelist and writer, uh, 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 Ananta Promediator was uh, uh, imprisoned twice, um, uh, uh, first by the Dutch and later uh, by Saharo, I think. And, um, uh, you know, the minute I arrived, you know, somebody said, oh, we've got an English speaker, and they all went off, and then, you know, they arrived with this little guy who spoke perfect English. and was like, hello, I, you know, took me out and took me to his aunt's house and took me around and I ended up, you know, being taken to the high school to have a, uh, a meeting with the principal because he was kind of like a, you know, principals of high schools are kind of like a town officials. And, uh, you know, I had an audience with the, with the principal and, you know, it was beautiful. Yeah, I, I, it's funny that you mention a sailor because I've met in, in Southeast Asia, uh, Oftentimes, it's usually teenagers or sailors who speak English, right? right? Sure. Um, and so I've, I've I've had that same experience in a different part of, of that part of the world, where where there's just a very a very pure curiosity in you. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's interesting about sailors. I don't know if this is too much of a tangent for what we're talking about, but. Um, I read a book last year called uh, Sons of the Seas or Sons of the Waves, something like that, uh, about the, the, the British, common, common British seamen as opposed to officers during the uh, golden age of uh, sail in Britain. Sort of from the 1700s to 18, whatever, when steamships first came in. And um, uh, you know, one of the most amazing things that I had never thought about was that, you know, in those days, you know, there was no internet, no television, no film. I mean, people didn't see the, you know, your average English person didn't see um, the world, didn't see any of the world. You know, maybe they see a little something in Europe, but, you know, nothing of China or, or you know, the South Pacific or anything, but these sailors, you know, common sailors, people who are uneducated, often illiterate, um, were going all over the world and seeing it and bringing home stories of the world. I'll have to check out that book. And, and it occurs to me, sometimes we don't give credit to the true travelers of the people who aren't necessarily on the tourist trail. Because when I was growing up in Kansas, a lot of um, the refugee community in this era were Vietnamese refugees. Mm -hmm. um, and by the time they showed up in Wichita, Kansas, they lived on three continents. They mm -hmm. lived in Vietnam, and then they were in refugee camps in Australia, and then they were settled in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they were global in a way that You're the rest of us... Cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah, that they, they had a, a sense for the whole world in a way that we didn't, the, the, the local kids, air quotes, local kids didn't. You know, I think people who are, who, who you know, in Americans in particular, because it's a big, uh, kind of continental-sized country and 
you know, what, I, what is the statistic? I mean, 40% of Americans don't have passports or something. But, you know, you, it's easy to get, um, to imagine things as different as they, than they are and in, in terms of, you know, the diffusion of information and knowledge and, uh, and you know, traveling. You know, is there, or can you get there from here or can you get from there to there? How do people, you know, how would you get there? And, you know, how would people know about these things? But, you know, I've spent a lot of time with um, very remote people in, in very remote places, in particular in West Papua and in Borneo. And in uh, what always uh, amazes me is just how fast information travels. And it always traveled that way. People, you know, people are not static. People have always traveled and always, you know, the history of humanity is a history of diffusion and of travel and of wandering, both out of necessity, um, but I suspect also out of curiosity. Um, and, um, you know, people, uh, no, it doesn't matter where you are, there's somebody who's come from somewhere else and there are ideas and, you know, that, that's why you'll find a, you know, back in the eighties, you know, a, a picture of Madonna or Michael Jackson in a longhouse in Borneo or something, you know, even if they may not have ever heard of, of, uh, of, uh, a, a Madonna song, you know? And, um, you know, I think Lunatic Express was also born on the realization that I had made that, um, you know, wherever you were, there was a bus or a taxi or a, or a boat or a car or something to the next village, you know? Mm -hmm. Nobody doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, even if it's only five miles to the next village, and then you can literally travel around the world on those local conveyances. You know, there's always a, a, a bus to the next town. You talk about, uh, in Lunatic Express, the vulnerability of these places, the idea that if you share that, the discomfort and the mm. food of people, then they really open up to you. How did, how did you discover this? What did, how did you experience I that? I don't know, I think it's sort of a natural um, thing that I just, you know, it ob seemed obvious to me. But, you know, and, and as a reporter, I mean, you know, when you go report something and you're, you know, writing about a person or a group or a subculture or something, you know, you don't get anywhere by being standoffish and an asshole and insisting on your own, um, you know, your own water or stuff. And it just became you know, especially, you know, in Lunatic and especially as I went along and became ever more sort of confident and comfortable in, in these... <laughs> Hold on, Riley. We have a dog in the, in the microphone cord. Um, you know, it was just... Um, you know, you see Americans or people walking around with their backpacks and their big bottles of water you know, they're drinking water that maybe other people aren't drinking. I mean, it sets people apart. It's obvious. And if, you know, when you go into a restaurant and you, you know, everybody's uh, eating with their hands and drinking water out of the tap, which is usually not, you know, it's even tap water, it usually goes through some sort of filter, you know, and um, 
and you just eat and drink with people, then people see it and appreciate it. For the listeners who might think, well, I'm not a journalist, you know, I'm, I, how, do, how do we encourage people to get over those very simple fears of not leaving themselves vulnerable to places that might give them a perspective on a country that um, will deepen their travel experience? You know, everybody has a natural comfort level. And if you violate that comfort level a little bit, whatever that is, that can be a, you know, your own adventure and, and a good thing, you know, a story. I mean, that's the way I look at it. I'm, I like, it'll be a good story, no matter what. And I don't just mean a story for a publication, but just, you know, a good story to tell around the bar. Yeah, you that, know? that's not a bad travel motivation. You know, go it's ahead. a good story. What could, you know, what could go wrong? It'll be a good story. Yeah. But I think, too, people really, when they saw you eating with your fingers when you could have used utensils, when they saw you sort of sharing in the hardship, it actually drew them closer to you. It made them, you more interesting to them, as I understand it. Yeah, I think, I think it just made people feel like you were not protecting yourself from them that you're not uh, afraid to be with them, that you're not afraid to eat with your hands, that you're not better than them, that you're not more elite than them in some way. And people appreciate, you know, people want to be seen. People want to be seen no matter who they are and where they live, whether they're rich or poor. Uh, you know, people are curious, they want to talk, they want to show you you know, who they are and how they live. And, you know, I mean, you know this from your own experiences. You know, you, you know, how many times have you gotten invited home, you know, to somebody's house for lunch or, you know, tea or coffee? And that's always the kind of most beautiful experience to be. You know, how many times do I invite somebody home that I've never met before, you know? Zero. Zero. You know, yeah. when I'm walking along the streets of Washington, D.C. Yeah. You know, and if I saw some, you know, lost Italians or some lost Sri Lankans right now, would I invite them home? Probably not, you know, which is a black mark against me, you know, because I've been invited home in Italy and Sri Lanka and, you know, Bangladesh. I mean, everywhere. It's interesting how that when you leave yourself vulnerable to people, suddenly they give you that story at the bar, but you also become the most interesting person they've met that month. You know, I think your average yeah, person. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't, you know, they only know America in film. Everyone's seen film or on the internet and, uh, or, you know, at a great distance. And, you know, suddenly to have you in their midst, then they, you know, ask or then, you know, a lot of people ask me about visas, you know, one, a visa, can I get them a visa, you know, which I'm always sad to report that I can't. And often I say, listen, you don't want to go to America. You know, people have visions of the land of milk and honey. And I'm like, you know, you, in America, you know, people aren't around their families. They're often living very atomistic uh, lonely lives and, you know, maybe with a higher standard of living, but, a, you know, a much more, much more of an existential uh, emptiness. So what was it like to live in these super, super isolated places where you might not share a language with other people? You know, life is incredibly slow. Like, mind-numbingly for a visitor like me, you know, slow and boring. 
And in a way, I mean, fascinating, but also, you know, nothing is really happening and there's nothing to do. And what people do is they talk. You know, they talk all the time. You know, and they, you know, the women, of course, in a place like Asmat, as in many places all over the world, the women do more work than the men. So, you know, and the women would have to cook all the meals and women would get in the canoes and go down to the ocean and, you know, traipse through the, the muddy shallows catching um, shrimp and small crustaceans and the occasional fish. Um, and uh, 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 this kind of like, you know, krill, and the men, I guess the men would go get sago, sago worms, and men would do carving, and men would do a lot more ceremonial stuff. Um, uh, and for instance, while I was there, the month I was there, they built, a, the men built a longhouse, a men's house, you know, huge structure, 300 feet long, and not a nail, not a plan, you know, um, in it. And um, so they were busy doing that, and that, in and of itself is a spiritual thing. So it, you know, they were drumming and singing all the time. So, you know, but other than that, you know, if you wanna, you know, in a place like that, if you wanna hear music, you have to play the music or sing the song. And people are musical, so people are singing and playing music all the time. And if you wanna hear a story, you know, you don't tell, turn on the TV or the radio, you tell a story. And so it's incredibly, personal, slow and personal, you know, people. Again, what's hardest for me is just in all of those situations, lunatic, savage, any situation is I'm just used to a lot more solitude hmm. than that. And then, and you know, there's virtually no solitude. You know, the, the, my time in Asmat, I was never alone unless I went into the, you know, the, the, the outhouse. You know, and even that, I mean, little cracks and all the women are right outside because it's right off the kitchen, you know, kind of listening. And, you know, if you went in to take a bath, you jump in the river and the minute you start to do that, all the kids, you know, 20 kids come out, you know. Um, and uh, so you're never, you know, and there were about 20 people living in the house that was, a, you know, probably 600 square feet. Um, and, uh, you know, 4.30 in the morning, I mean, the light, you know, first light, you know, babies start crying and people are hissing them and then, the, you know, I mean, there's just noise and, and, um, and, but there's nothing to do really, especially for someone like me, you know, an outsider, there's nothing to do. I don't have any responsibilities. I don't have to do anything. And, um, you know, it's just very, very slow time drags. And then, you know, slowly you get used to that and then it doesn't drag as much. But at first, it's, it's, it's agonizingly slow, you know, and hot and dirty and uncomfortable. I mean, there's nowhere, you know, you sit on the floor, there's no asthmat, have no beds or anything, you know, sometimes a little pad, but, you know, basically, then there's no furniture in their houses, you know, they're all just talking and, you know, they may go to sleep at 6, they may, may go to sleep at 11 p.m. I mean, there's no, it seems totally random and everyone's talking and then they just kind of roll over and fall asleep, you know, <laughs> until they wake up. I mean, and, and so, you know, when I, my mother, you're from Kansas, my mother is from North Dakota. Mm from a little town called Kandu, North Dakota. You can do better in Kandu. <laughs> and uh, that uh, my relatives helped homestead in, uh, in the late 1800s. And 
um, you know, my mother was born there, and uh, my grandfather lived on a farm in Kandu, and we would go back. And when we would go back, my mother, we would go visit it, she called it. You know, we would go from house to house and just talking to people. And it was excruciating for me as a child, you know, to sit there was so boring. But I see huge parallels. Now, of course, she was visiting, she was catching up. Right. But still, it's like, I see big parallels between that and, and the, the amount of sort of talking and conversation with your neighbors. And in a town of 1500 of Kandu and, you know, a, a village of, you know, 500 in, in Asmal. You know, it's pretty much the same in a way. <laughs> I feel like I had a similar epiphany in the Mentawai Islands off the coast of uh -huh, Sumatra in uh -huh. Indonesia. Which are probably very similar. Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen, I know a little bit about Mentawai. So much of what you said has reminded me exactly of that situation where, where there's a guide and a translator, and so part of the conversation was translated, but I think everybody sort of got tired of that. Of and hosting then, you, yeah. yeah, talking about why they do things. <laughs> right, right. But in a very pure way, they just started talking about pigs and other things that were of interest right. in that village. And at first, I actually write about it in The Vagabond's Way, at first I was bored and, and I was really frustrated, and then I realized that my attention has been harvested in ways at home. It has been fragmented. Mm. And in a way, I could just pay attention to everything. I didn't need to be bored. I could sort of let time slow down. A right, bit. you're bored because you have different expectations of how time unfolds and what you do, you know, in, in, um, in the course of your day, whether it's looking at your phone. I mean, you know, I find it difficult to go, you know, I, 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 I'm not even a heavy social media user, really, but I find it difficult not to check the Post and the Times and Twitter and Instagram, you know, constantly throughout the day. I, you know, not to mention, you know, uh, uh, streaming things and books and phone calls with people and, you know, so many things. You need something, you go buy it, shopping, you know, it's just constant. Whereas if you're in that village, time is unfolds completely organically. And really it's all about, you know, sort of conversation, work as necessary, conversation, and play if you're a child. Like, I don't know about Mentawai, probably the same. To me, the sound of a village is the sound of children playing. Huh you know, which you don't see here as much anymore. It's not out there. I mean, people don't let their kids roam, at least in urban places, the way, you know, children in the village, in, uh, when I lived in the village in Asmat, I mean, the kids were, you know, they, they're in a pack and they're going from dawn till <laughs> dusk, you know, climbing trees, jumping in the river, climbing that tree, jumping in the river over and over and over again. And then they're building like, um, you know, uh, uh, bush forts, and then they've got fire in the fort. I mean, you know, nobody, you know, and then they got a knife or a pointed stick in the fire in the fort. I mean, no one tells them not to do it. No one says, you know, they, and then the next thing you know, the kid runs over and he's cut himself and he's burned himself. And the, you know, parents kind of, and then they send him back in. I mean, nobody, you know, he coddles the kids. Next thing you know, the kid's got a snake that he's putting in the stick on the fire. I mean, you know, and that's constant. 
Yeah, we, we called that in the 80s, it was the free range, in retrospect, it's the free range childhood. But yes. even in the 80s, we had bicycles and TVs and stuff. And so you come to those, and you were talking about the idea of visiting as a synonym for having a conversation. Mm. My mom used, what were you doing? Oh, we were just visiting. Well, that meant, mm -hmm. as a Kansas farm girl, that meant they were talking, that visiting was synonymous with talking. Yes, that's the word. When I hear, when I, that word, I mean, you know, Kansas, North Dakota, yeah. visiting, it's the same. It's the same word. Yeah. It's the same, and it's the same thing. And, you know, I never, uh, that experience and that definition of visiting never left me. It made a really powerful impression on me. Because I feel like it's not, like, you know, I might have someone over for dinner or friends over for a fire or something, but it's not the same. It's, it's not the same, it's kind of similar, it has moments of similarity. It's socializing, but it's not visiting in the same way that my mother did it in North Dakota. Or my mother in Kansas. Yeah, we're at this technological moment where visiting no longer implies the same conversation-based visit as before. It, mm -hmm. might be, it might be spread out more, and everybody might not be involved in the same conversation, mm -hmm. and people might be checking their phones or... Yeah, for sure. And I think that's all part of, um, you know, to bring it back around. I mean, that's sort of part of traveling is, is listening and, and visiting and... Uh, experiencing the world in a much more direct, organic way versus digitally, which so much of our experience is, you know, and people talk about, you know, all the time, I, I, you know, the, this, the, the wonder of uh, what are those things you put on your head and virtual reality okay, or something. Yeah. There's nothing that seems worse to me than yeah. the idea of virtual reality. It's not real. I want to be there. I want to smell it and have that awkward conversation. Yeah, smelling is so key. It feels like we've, we've the sight and sound senses are completely mediated for some people in some people's lives. But smell is something that can't really be virtualized. Yeah, for sure. If you put a, um, a uh, you know, if you could make a, a film or a television show have the smell, it would be really transformative of the real smell of the place to be transformative. You know, the world's, I mean, America smells very antiseptic. You know, I mean, right now I can sort of smell the grass and the leaves a little bit. And there's, you know, if I go into Rockview Park, there's a powerful smell of the woods and the creek has a smell and you can be at a restaurant and smell things or in someone's house, or you can smell a burning fire of the fall or winter. But in so much of the world, smell is really much more, you know, I mean, Bali, every house has a, a little temple where there's incense burning every morning. You know, there are those little things that are put in every doorway and on the street corner. They're all burning, you know, people are smoking, you know, Craytex clove cigarettes. I mean, you know, there's such a, there's garbage. I mean, not that that's so great, but, um, you know, there's, there's a fruit, I mean, there's, there's such a, a variety and richness of smells. I remember the first time I went to the Philippines, it was my first tropical mm -hmm. country that I stepped off the airplane and, and just suddenly I entered a smell realm that it never occurred to me existed. Yeah, and that's so powerful. And smell is, um, to me, is a really, uh, is a, 
you know, smell, you can smell a smell that you, and think of something that you, hadn't even, that you haven't thought of in years, and then suddenly it's there, very, it's very present, and, and, and sort of you can be suffused with that memory by smelling that smell. Yeah, it's, it's so evocative. That's the word. For, for my listeners who might, you mentioned that there's no shame in going on a cruise or going to a very obvious tourist place because it's, it's an experience of difference in its own way. But for people who might want to push that comfort envelope, um, what advice might you give to people to, um, to go a little bit slower and be a little bit more vulnerable in certain parts of the world? The first thing is just to go. If you have an inclination or an inkling, a desire, a curiosity to go, then you sh and you have the funds to do it, then you should, you know? And, um, you know, then the second part is if you do go, leave, uh, uh, you know, I would recommend leaving some days, you know, personally I leave all days, but, you know, to, to unplanned activities, you know, you don't have to buy tickets to everything in advance and, and uh, um, you know, you don't have to go to every tourist destination and, and, you know, you don't even have to book every night's stay in advance. Um, you know, if you're not going very long, you know, then that's a little bit different. But, um, you know, and then leave days in which you just walk and wander and can go down that alley or that street. I mean, you know, and the other option thing is to take public transportation, which you know, I'm bad at here in my own home territory. I can't remember the last time I was on a DC bus, for instance. But, um, you know, if you're in London or Rome or, or uh, Lagos and, you know, uh, or Cairo, a bus is a, a pretty good portal into uh, um, a more authentic world. Awesome. Well, thanks for speaking with me today. And you're welcome. Riley, is it? Riley was yeah. here for the whole thing. Right. He got a little bored, though. <laughs> right, right. He got a little nervous, but uh, it's all good. Now he's uh, feeling better. He's like, they stopped visiting. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Carl Hoffman's book, The Lunatic Express, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviateatrolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.